Beloved, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 6 through 15 as we uh, continue in the month of January to deal with some different themes um, uh, that are important in the life of the church. We will return to our series in Romans in February, God willing, and we look forward to that uh, starting in Romans chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians 9 and beginning in verse 6. Please hear the word of the living God. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we come to this somewhat familiar passage, we pray that you would give us new insights, new convictions, that our hearts would be changed as your gospel is proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our God is a generous God. Our God is a generous God, and we, his redeemed children, are called to be a generous people. Our God is a giving God. And we, his redeemed people, are called to be a giving people. Our God is a gracious God. And we, his redeemed people, are called to be a gracious people. You get the picture. And verse 11 of our passage for this morning summarizes this theme perfectly. Look there in verse 11 in the first part. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Enriched by our generous Heavenly Father that we would be generous in every way. The dictionary defines the word generous as, quote, showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. 
showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. To be generous, to be giving, is to exceed expectations, to surprise those who live around you and who know you. As we come to our text for this morning, I want each of us to reflect upon our own lives. And in a world of greed and insatiable consumerism, whether or not the posture or pattern of our lives is one of generosity and giving, particularly as it concerns the spread of the gospel and the work of God's kingdom. Well, the context of our passage for this morning presents a situation where Christians in Corinth are supporting the work of the church in Jerusalem. Now, what is particularly interesting to me about this section where the, the church in Corinth is being lauded, they're being encouraged, they're being praised by Paul, is we know what the other parts of First and Second Corinthians say about the Corinthian church. Um, no one in their right mind would have wanted to go to First Presbyterian Church in Corinth and pastor that church. There were so many layers of problems and factions and false teachers. and It was a complete disaster. And if anybody thinks they've been part of a bad church in the past, read First and Second Corinthians. And you will realize a couple of things. Number one, your church really wasn't that bad that you attended. Just because they didn't play your favorite song, you know, once a month doesn't mean you should leave a church. Just because you didn't like one of the leaders doesn't mean you should leave a church. We have all these small-ish reasons for leaving churches, but Corinth, the church in Corinth was a mess. And yet Paul speaks to them with apostolic love. He rebukes them. He tells them they're acting like children. Drinking milk when they should be feasting on the meat of the word. He rebukes them for following certain leaders and factions within the church. And, and, and yet, at the same time, he is encouraging them. He's calling them brothers. He's, he's assuming the best about them and loving them and leading them as a pastor. And here in this section, we have Paul encouraging the church for their extraordinary generosity. But he also knows that at times people will give with different re- for different reasons, compelled by different motives and so on and so forth. So Paul wants to deal with that here. And of course, as this is God's word, which is trans-temporal and trans-cultural, uh, we want to listen to what God's word has to say uh, to us this morning in our own context. The church in Jerusalem was in dire straits. Uh, They were struggling with poverty. They were having financial struggles. Why? Because they were under great persecution. We can read about this in the early chapters of Acts. And so the church in Jerusalem was in dire straits. The believers in Corinth were being encouraged by Paul to give cheerfully and generously towards the needs of their brothers and sisters in that far-off place, and this is indeed what they did. We'll learn from our passage about the nature of generous giving, what compels it, and what it means to give to the work of the church with purpose and gladness. And so let's examine this text together by looking, first of all, 
at our generous God. Because that's really where it all begins. Giving, being generous in our Christian lives, supporting the work of the church and so forth, is not chiefly about duty. It's certainly not about writing checks in order to gain a place in heaven. Maybe that sounds strange to your ears, but that's the way a lot of people think about charitable giving or giving to the church, that I'm sort of writing my ticket to heaven. Of course God is going to let me into heaven. I've written big checks. I've been sacrificial. I've been generous. But the proper way to come at this subject is to reflect upon, first and foremost, our generous God. The more we understand our Bibles, the more we learn that God is not only a giver, but an extravagant giver. Have you ever received an extravagant gift where you were almost embarrassed about how nice, perhaps how expensive that gift was, or perhaps what a sacrifice needed to be made to give you that gift? You probably have. Many of you probably have. God is an extravagant giver. He is not miserly. Quite the contrary. Notice in verse 8, the idea, the concept of fullness and completeness is used no less than five times in terms of how he gives to us. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You think of uh, a waterfall or, or, or several uh, movements of a waterfall, and it just, keeps, it just keeps coming and coming. This is God's goodness and grace towards us. It's grace upon grace, lavished upon us in Christ. Do you understand what's being stressed here? There is not one good thing in our lives, whether material or spiritual, that God has not given to us. All of it. Consider even now all the blessings that come from the loving hand of God into your lives. Think about your family. Kids, think about your mom and dad. Think about your home. Think about your job. Think about the, the clothes in your closet, the food in the cupboard, and in the refrigerator. We are so extraordinarily blessed, and it all comes from God's hand. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? I thought it came from Publix. Yes, kids, it does come from Publix or Harris Teeter or wherever you shop but ultimately it comes from God's hand because these places wouldn't exist. The food would not be there. We would not have the means to buy the food apart from God giving it to us by his goodness and his grace. Listen to James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In Psalm 104, we see the providence of God and his goodness supplying all things to all creatures. He is the first mover of all good gifts in creation. Uh, perhaps like me, you enjoy all the wildlife in the low country, and uh, you see the herons uh, fishing, you know, walking around slowly in the water to get that slimy meal, uh, you know, several times a day. And so, but 
we recognize that ultimately God is feeding the heron, that God is supplying the food. And we see this right here in Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verse 10. You make springs gush, gush, excuse me, gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. You, O oh God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. By the way, the wine that gladdens the heart of man is not grape juice. It is wine that <laughs> gladdens the heart of man. God provides all of this. He supplies all of this. Psalm 104, 21. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from whom? From God. Psalm 104, 27 and 28. These all look to you, all of creation, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And this is true of us. When God opens his hand, they are filled with good things for us, for his people. Our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.26 says, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Is God's role of sovereign provider becoming clearer? There is not one thing you have that God did not ultimately supply to you from the overflow of his infinite goodness and abundant grace. It's all a gift from his hand. And one of the worst things about us living in the flesh and giving in and yielding to the flesh is our thankless heart. The thanklessness that we often live with when we have been given so much is extraordinary. In all of our hearts, we're all guilty. That's why we confess our sins every Lord's Day, and hopefully every day. But the thanklessness is, is, is astonishing. When God has given us so much, it's proof that we still struggle with remaining indwelling sin, and we need God's grace every day. There are Many names that are given to God in the Bible, and one of them is used in Genesis 22:14, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord my provider. The Lord is my provider. Genesis 22 is where the familiar story takes place when when Abraham is commanded by God to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him before the Lord. Believing God to be true to his covenant promise, that he would bless the nations through Isaac, and so believing that, that if, if he follows through with God's command, that God would indeed raise him up, that he would resurrect him in order to fulfill this promise that would be made through Isaac's seed, Abraham obeys this command promptly, rising early in the morning to head to the mountain. After placing his son Isaac on the altar, he raises his knife above his head to thrust it into the heart of his cherished son, the son whom the text says that he loves, that he loves. But just before he brings the knife down, of course, the angel says, stop, don't do it. And there was a ram caught in the thicket 
And so he took the ram and he sacrificed it. And Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord provides. This leads us to our second sub-point under this first point, namely the Father's indescribable gift of grace. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, but was stopped by the angel and would then sacrifice the ram. That ram and the entire sacrificial system that would come 400 years later all pointed to the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You see, when Christ went to the cross, different than when Isaac was laying on the altar, there was no ram in the thicket. There was no substitute for Christ because he was and is the substitute, the only worthy substitute to pay for the debt of your sins and mine. There was no angel as the Roman soldier was pulling the hammer back to nail in the metal spikes into his wrists and feet. There was no angel to say, Stop! Don't do it! This man is innocent. He is the Son of God. He does not deserve this. It's all these people who deserve it. No, there was no angel. In fact, Christ was abandoned by his disciples. He was abandoned by all. And even the Father would turn his face away as the sins of the world, as your sins and mine were, were upon him. And he would be judged in our place. He, the wrath of God would be poured upon him in our place. Jesus Christ was the only one worthy to be that substitute for his people. God provides us with all things, food, shelter, family, but most incredibly, he provides us with the gift of his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the indescribable gift. God is the greatest giver of all. Look with me again at verses 8 through 11 and 15. Number one in verse 8, it says, He makes all grace abound to you. Abound to you. Secondly, verse 8, he provides all your needs. He's all sufficient. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, verse 10, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. He sanctifies you by his spirit. Fourthly, in verse 15, it says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. How can we properly thank God for the gift of his Son? The one who he sent to save us from the bondage of Satan, sin, death, and hell. It is through God's inexpressible gift that we receive full pardon for our sins by grace through faith. It's through his son that we receive imputed righteousness and sonship and the inheritance of everlasting life. This gift then compels us to be givers. This divine generosity compels us to be a generous, not a miserly people. 
God gives us so many gifts in his son. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his word and his promises. He gives us his church. There are so many things we could consider this morning that he gives to us. But the passage before us states very clearly one way that we can properly respond to all of God's provisions and all of God's gifts and generosity. And that is that we would be a generous people. So you see how this giving and generosity doesn't begin with someone wrapping us on the wrist with a wooden stick and saying, you need to give more. Or somehow guilting people into giving more because there's this and that need. You know, the reality is the foundational of all sincere giving is driven by the gospel. It's the gospel that compels us. Not rules, not guilt, not fear of hell. It's the gospel that compels us. It's the love of God. Look with me uh, at verses 6 and 7 as we consider what it means to be a generous people. The point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. What does this mean exactly? I think, first of all, we should consider in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, that God calls us to be divine imitators. We are called to imitate God. Now, of course, we can't imitate God uh, in his incommunicable attributes, those attributes of being omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, those kinds of things. But we do imitate God in terms of his love and his generosity and his kindness and his graciousness and those kinds of things. And we are called to be like our Heavenly Father, in these ways. Because our God is forgiving, we are called to be forgiving. Because our God is holy and just, we are commanded to be the same. Because he is giving and generous, we ourselves are called to be giving and generous. And we can never be these things perfectly. We are united to Christ, who did these things perfectly, and in whom we are forgiven, and in whom we are counted as righteous, not because of our works, but because of his. So we don't do these things perfectly, but the pattern and posture of our lives is meant to be in this direction and growing. And so we imitate our bountifully generous and giving Father in heaven, and verses 6 and 7 present four principles for giving. Four principles for giving. Are you ready? Number one, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The one who gives little will receive little, both spiritually and materially. It's a divine mystery, but it's true. And let me say this, and I'll say this a couple more times. This is not a formula. Some people speak about these matters as if they're formulaic. You know, I give a certain amount of money and I'm going to get the exact measure of blessing that I think is blessing. You know, you may give and be generous and God may take something away from you, but that's exactly what you needed to be more blessed, to be closer to him. 
So this isn't some sort of, you know, human one-to-one -one thing where, you know, I give this much, you know, like the, 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 the wild and crazy charlatans on TV that tell you, give this much money and you're going to get that new Mercedes-Benz in three weeks. Those kinds of things are just nonsense and that's wicked, this prosperity gospel. But this principle stands true that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Oftentimes, God will withhold blessings for our good and for our sanctification, but there can be also a sparing reaping because of a lack of giving. The second thing we see here is the positive side. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The one who gives generously will reap generously, both spiritually and materially. Again, it's not a magic formula. But God does bless and love the cheerful giver. And we need to believe him for this and respond in childlike, grateful obedience. You see, I know that everyone in this room who has lived a life of giving and being generous has experienced blessing. I know that. I've, I've been in ministry too long to... to uh, to be ignorant of the way that the Lord is fulfilling his promises. He blesses his people for doing these, these things. And then thirdly, we learn to give with purpose. We are to give with purpose. Uh, one writer puts it this way, careful prior deliberation by the giver is implied by these instructions to give with purpose purpose. Now, I want to say just a couple of things about tithing. Uh, I think in the last 10 years, I've given a sum total of about three, maybe four sermons on giving, which is actually not good. Uh, that is not a boast. Um, part of the reason is that by God's grace, uh, this congregation has been a giving congregation and a generous congregation, and we praise the Lord for that. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, praise God, even this past year in 2023, where there were many changes, many shifts, uh, the Lord blessed, and we received uh, beyond and above our budgeted amount from last year. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, as I've given you updates throughout the year, the Lord has answered your prayers, and your generosity and giving have been apparent. The Lord has, has blessed but what is it about tithing that we should know? Uh, it's my uh, experience that particularly a lot of folks in the younger generation have never really understood this principle or been taught this principle. In the Old Testament, it was expected that God's people tithe from the first fruits of all that they acquired, providing money for the priests and the ministry to the poor and the needy. Tithing was done in the form of land, animals, crops, and money. Now, I don't think any of you brought chickens this morning, uh, but there are parts of the world where people will bring in, and I've been there, uh, uh, chickens and, and eggs and various things from their farm. Uh, they have no real money to give, and so they give of the first fruits of what they, uh, what they grow on their land. 
But in Deuteronomy 14, which is an entire section on tithing, in verse 22, it says this, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Now, some of you may be thinking, yes, pastor, but in the New Testament, there really is nothing specific or implicit, or explicit, rather, about tithing, and that is indeed true. Nevertheless, sacrificial giving towards the needs of the church is something that we see emphasized, and we see it of course, in our text for this morning. Is tithing an explicit command in the New Covenant context? It does not seem to be. There is some level of debate about this. Uh, however, I do believe that tithing, in principle, is a good starting point or minimum standard for Christians to follow today. That is, taking the first 10% of all earnings and giving them to the Lord and then going beyond the tithe to give out of a sacrificial and overflowing heart. In other words, seeing that first 10% as the Lord's and anything beyond it as a sacrificial offering, as it were. Speaking of the Corinthian church, Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 3 states, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. That was the generous heart of the church in Corinth. Now, sometimes I will bring up a scenario like this. Imagine if you knew nothing about the tithe at all. You knew nothing about the 10% principle. And let's say Angel Gabriel came down from heaven. Again, you were ignorant of any form of giving or anything in the Old Testament. And an angel came down from heaven and said, Okay, sir or ma'am, you are a child of God. God the Father gave his one and only son for you to die for you. He's the inexpressible gift to you. He's blessed you with family and food and, and clothing and a place to live and a job and all of these things he's given to you. Now, how much out of your income do you think you should give? Probably none of us would say, hmm, 10%. Because we would think, that sounds so measly. One out of every $10, if I made $10, would go to the Lord when he has done so much for me and given me so much. Now, we probably would say something like 40%. Not knowing how one would be able to do that, but still thinking it's got to be a lot because God has been so generous to me. But here it is. The principle we have from the Old Testament is that God requires 10%. This is the minimum principle. Now, a word about this. There are some who have not been practicing this or have been working up to it, and that is wonderful. And I would encourage you, as you are putting this principle in place in your giving, in your walk with God, that you would work to increase it, to get it to that place. Don't fall into the lie that because you can't give 10%, you might as well just not give anything, just throwing your hands in the air. Because if everyone were to give in the life of any congregation, if everyone were to give something, 
some who are going to be tithers and have practiced that for decades, others who are just starting out and trying to think through it and thinking through their finances and where they are in life. But if everyone were to give something, knowing how generous God has been to us and wanting to live in obedience to his word and give back from the first fruits of all that he's given to you, oh, how our provisions would grow. Oh, how our opportunities for ministry would grow. And oh, how blessed you would be to be a part of the giving of Christ's church. But the lesson, I believe, that comes to us in this passage, namely to sow bountifully or to give generously, is that we must give according to biblical principles out of the overflow of our heart, that is, with cheerful hearts, not begrudgingly, but with cheerful hearts. If someone were to ask you, why are you giving to the church? Well, because pastor said I had to. That is not what God's looking for, of course. He wants cheerful givers who reflect upon and who rest in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, that inexpressible gift. And that compels us to want to be givers, to want to be generous. If we are, let me say this, if we are unwilling to give of our time or to give of our money, the two things that Americans value the most, if we're unwilling to part with those things for the Lord, it is saying something very serious about the state of your heart. It is saying something very serious about the spiritual condition of your heart. Because if we are not giving our time in whatever respect to the Lord and giving our first fruits of our income to the Lord in some respect, then it means we're giving nothing. And if we're giving nothing, we have to ask, do we really know the Lord? Because when you are in a relationship with someone and you love them, you give of yourself, your time, and your resources. And so we have the priority here of giving. Remember the point from verse 7. That is, to give with purpose. What does this mean in practical terms? Again, in verse 7, you'll see here, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. There's purpose there, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What does it mean in practical terms? Well, it's pretty simple. Figure out in your household budget how much you will give to the Lord and to his work. Take that sum and subtract it from your budget for each month. Let 10% be the goal for a minimum. Again, there may be seasons of life. There may be times uh, of struggle. We're not able to reach that. Or perhaps you've been trying to reach that. Or perhaps you're young and just starting out and you're just trying to figure it all out. The principle is move there. Set some goals that by 2025, you're going to be a tither. Or by 2026, you're going to be a tither. And move towards that. But make it a priority. And then ask this question. Does my giving reflect a sparing heart? Or does my giving reflect a bountiful and sacrificial heart? Remember in the Gospel of Luke when the poor widow went to the temple and dropped the two coins, which equaled a penny, into the coffer. And Jesus said, she's given more than everybody. Why? Well, she's given out of heart of love and she's given all she has. And so this, this is the heart that we should consider. 
Incidentally, we ought to see the offering uh, time in each Lord's Day service as a vital part of our worship service. Every time you place your offering in the plate, you should bow and give thanks to God for all that he has given to you and that you have the privilege of giving back to him and to his church. Say, well, pastor, I, I give online. Well, then as the, uh, as the plates come by, pray that same prayer in terms of the giving that you've done that month. Christ's words are true when he says this. And oh, what a word for us in a very uh, affluent area where so much focus is often placed upon materialism. Listen to this. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where, neither th where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart must be also. So do not sow sparingly, but sow bountifully and give with purpose. And then do not give grudgingly or under compulsion. That's the fourth sub-point. Give with a cheerful heart, a heart compelled by love for God and love for his church. And finally, we see the fruit of generosity and giving. I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but notice in verse 7 that it says, God loves and blesses a cheerful giver. This is the fruit of giving. Paul quotes from Proverbs 22.8 here, which says, he who is generous will be blessed. The biblical precept is this. God shows great favor towards those who give to his work in a generous manner. This is true, and so we ought to give, not out of uh, guilt or compulsion, but out of a heart of love and gratitude. Secondly, notice in verses 12 and 17, the fruit of giving, praises and thanksgivings are the fruit of giving. The generous giving of the Corinthian church ignites all sorts of praise and thanksgiving in the Jerusalem church. Look there at verse 12. Verse 12, it says that there were many thanksgivings to God because of their giving. Secondly, the glorification of God in verse 13. And then thirdly, a yearning for Christian fellowship with those who gave. That is what happens. It's when we stay on the margins with our lives and our time and our money that we are not invested with our lives and time and money, our resources as it were, and we stay on the, 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 the margins of the church that we will never truly experience that communion with God and one another that God intends for us to, to, to experience as his people. And then thirdly, the third fruit is we reflect and demonstrate the generosity and grace of God. Look at verse 14. You'll see it there. The Corinthians are told that the Christians in Jerusalem yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. You see, when we give sacrificially and generously to the work of the Lord, we demonstrate that God's grace is indeed at work in us and through us at Christ Church. And when by his grace we give in generous measures, the love within the church grows and strengthens. So God gives, his people give, and the result is the glory of God and thanksgiving to him and sweet fellowship with one another. And God always gets the glory. And so let us consider what we would give to the church. Let us consider 
For Paul says that each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Organize your budget so it's clear that Christ is the Lord of your finances and not you or the world or King Street. American idols like time and money just rule our hearts too often. You see, God has, in his wisdom, commanded us to give of our time one day a week. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he's commanded us to give of our finances. There are two things we have a hard time parting with. And the Lord knows when we give them to the Lord, when we prioritize these things to the Lord, then the rest of our money and the rest of our time is more sanctified. As you give sacrificially each week, contemplate the infinite and bounteous blessings of God that he has indeed already bestowed upon you. May we rejoice in and respond to our generous God this morning with sacrificial generosity in 2024. And may we recognize afresh that we have been enriched in every way to be generous and giving, especially as it concerns the work of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for being such a generous God and Father to us, your children. And we pray simply, Lord, that we would put our hope and our trust in Christ alone for our salvation, but in him that we would live by your Spirit to be a generous people and that you would provide for all of the needs of this congregation and also, Lord, that you would supply the needs of congregations all over this country so that the gospel would go forth with power and that many would be saved and brought into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to please stand as we sing our hymn, Jesus Paid It All, number 276.